Hello and welcome to Leave Your Mark. I'm your host, Scott Livingston, and this is where I explore the influences that have shaped the lives of our incredible guests. These are the stories of lives worth talking about. Follow me on Twitter at Built by Scott and Instagram at King O'Pain, or link up with me on my Facebook fan page, Scott G. Livingston. My goal is to empower and inspire a community of people who take every opportunity to live a high-performing life. Hey there, the Leave Your Mark Life Lab cohort number two starts Next week, Tuesday, the 11th of October, we begin the next cohort. I've been leading a group of amazing performance professionals for the last six months, and it's just been an incredible uh, session with really good humans who are exploring all the potential in their lives and the things that they want to do and really getting things lined up for themselves. I just want to read you a testimonial from Dana Lease, who's a very accomplished nutrition practitioner that uh, I've known for a while, and Dana's been in the program, and she just wrote, I've been a part of the LYM lab for a year now, and it has been an incredible experience for me. The lab is an eclectic group of high-performing people, and under Scott's leadership, it has been nothing short of a life-changing experience. We've worked on not only creating intention with our lives, but within the group, there is such a vast array of experience that help guide our weekly discussions. I would recommend the LYM Life Lab to any individual who wants to create a life worth living and who wants to drive the bus on their decisions and on the outcomes of the life they create. I just wanted to read that to you because uh, I found this to be such an empowering experience, both for myself and for the people that I'm working with. I love the opportunity to mentor and really so that you know who you're getting invested with. uh, I've been through everything in human performance. I've worked clinically as a therapist. I've worked in a university space for eight years in varsity athletics, worked in professional sports, the National Hockey League for 11 years. I worked with Olympic athletes for over 15, close to 20 years now, training them, reconditioning them. I've been a performance director of a unique foundation that supported Olympic athletes. I've been through several marriages and divorces, and I'm now in an incredible relationship with my partner and business partner and life partner, Jamie, and uh, we are crafting our lives. I'm a father. I'm a son. I uh, am a friend to many, and I have mentored many, many people in my life. So I would love to help you critically assess your world, look at what you want to achieve and help you get directed. And that's what the Life Lab does. So we get in there for a full 12 months. Once a week, we meet. There are three levels. You can take a look at it all at lymalab.com. You go right to the Life Lab page and read all about what we're getting into. And um, last moments to apply this week. So if you've been thinking about it, jump in soon and fill in the application and I'll get right back to you. We can, if you need to have a little call or something, uh, PM me. I'm happy to jump on a call too. All right. Take care. I want to take a moment to really shout out and say thank you to our Most important sponsor, MatrixFitness.com. Greg Lawler agreed numerous years ago now to support this podcast and to make it what it is today. 
And he is representative of a corporate culture at Matrix Fitness that is really all about serving the customer and making sure you get what it is you need to do the things you need to do, whether that's serving uh, an entire organization or team or a single individual, building a performance facility, uh, taking care of yourself and your own home fitness needs, matrixfitness.com does it all. And they are a global company worldwide. You can get any solution you need for your um, product needs, as well as consulting on building your own facility or a facility for your organization. So I can't recommend them enough. I appreciate everything they've done for Leave Your Mark. And I want this community to support what is our greatest sponsor, MatrixFitness.com. Head over to their site today and see what it is that they have and how they might be able to solve any problem you might have. Courtney Brown, chiropractor, Brooklyn Nets. This is what she took away from reconditioning. Being able to understand how to apply the information from assessment to movement. Reconditioning has been a weak point in my practice, but after completing R1 Foundations, I feel better prepared to bridge the gap and confidently apply the techniques to my athletes. Thank you. Pascal Guerrero team physical therapist for the Philadelphia 76ers. It's been revolutionary to say the least. From the mindfulness component to the methodological approach of movement assessment, it has installed a new fire and appreciation for what I do on a daily basis, but with a new twist now. Thank you sincerely from my heart. This is just a small sample of people who've taken R1 Foundation and work at the highest levels of performance. But it really is a course for anybody who wants to get better at what they do in terms of taking care of their clients from point A to point Z or Z if you're an American listening. At the end of the day, reconditioning is an operating system for bringing the worlds of therapy and performance together under the operating paradigm of applied neurology. It blends these systems and brings them all together and allows you to practice and to operate in both worlds. So whether you're a therapist or a performance practitioner, it upgrades your capacity in these different areas so that you really can manage and deal with situations that are transcending from injury to performance and return to sport. So we have a live course coming up in Montreal, November 5th, 6th, and then another live one, November 19th, 20th for R1 Foundations in Victoria, BC. We also have an R2 Designs for those of you who've taken our first level course before and an eight-week online lab that serves it and supports it with all the online materials, and that starts October 20th. So if you want to reinvent your practice so you can take care of more situations and take care of your clients in a better way, we invite you to apply and register for a course today in whatever format you need, whether it's online or live. We have it all. Take care. www.reconditioninghq.com. Now that we've taken care of those that take care of us, on to the podcast. Hello and welcome to Leave Your Mark. I'm your host, Scott Livingston, and today I have the pleasure of speaking with Eric Otter. Eric is the head of sports medicine 
for the Memphis Grizzlies. Eric directs an interdisciplinary team of athletic trainers, performance coaches, physical therapists, sports scientists, psychologists, and dietetic chefs to support the Grizzlies athletes. Eric grew up in Georgia where he was a state champion sprinter and college football player at Georgia Tech. In 2016, he left Georgia Tech's applied physiology PhD program studying brain and nervous system plasticity to join the Grizzlies. Eric earned his doctor of physical therapy degree from the Emory University School of Medicine is also a certified strength conditioning specialist. He is published in both academic journals and print media. I'm pleased to have him on the show today. Welcome, Eric. Yeah. Good morning, Scott. Uh, <laughs> I appreciate it. Actually, I wanted to say some of your episodes have been pretty formative uh, for me uh, listening. Uh-huh. Uh, I know I shared that with you, so it's, a, it's an honor to be on. Thank you. I really appreciate your time. So you're growing up in uh, Georgia as a little boy. What is a little boy in Georgia wishing he could be? What, what did you want to be when you were a little guy? Yeah, that's a fair question. Um, I think for most of being a little guy, like if we constrain to, to, to youth, I, I don't really know what I wanted to be. Um, mm. And uh, as you noted in my bio, I do become an athlete, but that certainly wasn't the pathway early. Like I was, mm. a, I was a participant in youth sports, but bottom third of any team I, I participated on. Um, I was into Boy Scouts at the time. I was into orchestra. Um, I did well in school. I don't know that I was academically inclined, uh, like as a focus, Mm. uh, but it was fairly cloudy, um, Mm. until I was in really into high school before things started to form that, uh, that athletics was something that I was, that I was going to pursue. Wow. That's Uh, really cool. Interesting. <laughs> a lot of people have have in athletics have kind of an earlier start, but I love that. I love. I want to unpack that a bit. Yeah, absolutely, man. Absolutely. Um, when I was, uh, you know, just to just to chase that thread a bit, I, I recall being in the eighth grade, and I had been. I'd actually taken some time away from sports um, because, again, youth sports just weren't something that I really connected with. But all my friends were going out for the baseball team, mm. and I felt like that was what I wanted to do. And I feel as though I was, I was put on the team almost based on charity because like all my friends made the team mm-hmm. and I didn't make the team. And one of my teachers was the coach and, you know, you know, she was, she was kind enough. She was kind enough to give me a spot. But as I was integrating with this group of friends, uh, many of them were, were going out for the football team as well. Right. And, 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 and uh, I don't know how it works in Canada, but in America, um, there's the opportunity for someone who's sort of ending their middle school years. This would be around like eighth year mm. that they could practice with the high school team in the spring. Um, and following this group of friends, I was sort of pulled into this and football was brand new for me. Like this was not a sport that I had any experience playing peewee flag, anything like this. Um, only still doing it to just kind of connect with the camaraderie of my group. Right. And this was sort of the, there was a switch that was flipped maybe at this point, um, where I found something that was, that was interesting enough to occupy my time Mm. and right along with it, for whatever reason, there was this ability to train for that sport, um, Mm. physically. Uh, and this, this combination was sort of like the spark that put a seed in my brain that, Athletics, or at least this particular pass, was, was something that I could pursue. Mm. Um, go ahead. Was there was there a coach or uh, someone in that fabric that kind of instigated your um, your 
connection to it immediately? Like, or was it just self self directed in some sense? Well, I mean, growing up in Georgia, there's, uh, there's an ecosystem that surrounds you where, mm-hmm. where, uh, football is, is, is primary, at least in the sort of central Georgian area that I'm from. Mm-hmm. Um, but it, it's, Scott, these are interesting questions because as I reflect, like there really wasn't, I mean, mm-hmm. there, there really wasn't, I think there was a desire to be proximate to this group of friends that I had. Mm-hmm. I reflect back on like my parents, they were, they were long distance runners. My dad was an ultra marathoner, but didn't really play any sort of a competitive sport, uh, with any kind of success. He'll tell a story that he, he on the peewee football team once intercepted a pass for a touchdown and won a game. And that was kind of like the (laughs) team sport pinnacle. Um, but, but I don't know that I can give you a great answer for like, what, what was the initial hook there? Um, I can tell you that, that as I started to play more, there was this connection that I was drawing between the training that you did for the sport and the fact that that seemed to improve my ability to compete. Mm. And then I had some success early, uh, which really at, at that age is, is kind of, you're just uh, not afraid to tackle people. I think that's what coaches <laughs> see is that you're, you're willing to sacrifice a little bit of your safety, mm. um, for, for the team. Um, and this was maybe athletics. Like I never had felt that at any other sport at any other level. I'd never felt like, Oh, I'm doing this correctly. Um, you know, and I also had this, you know, my parents, like I said, were runners. Uh, so like I would run road races with them early now. I mean, again, these are not like formal competitive races, but I would like sometimes beat adults in a one mile race and things like Mm -hmm. this. So I at least had like the substrate to have some running, ability. Now this was long distance. It wasn't really suited for the sport, but, um, I was able to carry that in as well. Mm-hmm. Were, um, your, were your parents, um, kind of like supportive, but not pushy in terms of sports or, and, and more driven around athletic or, uh, academics, or did they just kind of let Eric do his thing? Like uh, Eric is Eric and he's going to discover who he is kind of thing. How, how did they uh, approach that? Well, I'm, I think in, I think incredibly, uh, my parents are, are amazing people. Um, I think if uh, on that continuum, it's probably more on the discovery side, you know, I mean, they were, I think they were really helpful in delivering me to different opportunities. Um, but just reflecting on the youth sport bit, like I was never, I was never pushed in youth sports and my performance was certainly nothing to be proud of <laughs> if I was a parent looking at a box score, you know? Mm-hmm. Um, but I never felt that, like, I never felt pressure for performing and it was more just this opportunity to, um, to experience. And then when, you know, at a young age, I, I sort of told them, like, I, I want to spend my time differently. Like I had, mm-hmm. I had other pursuits, like, uh, I, I mentioned a few of those that, that there was no, there was no hook of, well, you need to, you need to stay in sports. There was, there was, there was, uh, there was a real openness, mm-hmm. um, to explore, I think that what I saw from them though, is that they were both people who valued physical training. I mean, mm-hmm. I, I've been, I mentioned that before where I think of my mother, my mother's, uh, you know, she valued self-improvement. She valued things like nutrition. Um, you know, we had exercise equipment around the house and like, I saw this person who had sort of carried physical activity throughout her life. And actually it's like training on her Bowflex was my introduction to physical training. Like I'm doing the Chuck Norris workouts for (laughs) football at that time before there was like a formal program around it. Mm. Um, so I think it was like their, 
existence in physical activity that kept it on my radar. Right. Mm. And, and then there was this safety for me to step away from it Mm. and then sort of come back to it on my own terms. Mm. Um, and I'll be honest, uh, you know, given this opportunity reflect, which is unique, um, that's, that's had to play like some, some valuable role where, I never felt like I was pulled through sport. Um, mm. it, it was, it was very much like the motivation to train, the motivation to improve, um, was really more of a personal obsession than something anyone was, was asking me, you know, mm. to do, uh, maybe largely because of the environment that they, that they kind of set forth. Mm-hmm. Um, if you look back now with your, um, knowledge of yourself now and your own personality, how do you think you would have reacted to being pushed? Do you think it would have been a positive or negative uh, driver for you? That's a great question. Um, because there's, there's so much, there's been so much growth since that point that it's hard for me to say how I would have reacted at that moment. Mm-hmm. Um, I think I probably would have wanted to rise to that level that someone, like if I was challenged, um, I, I probably would have, would have risen to the level. Uh, mm. and I think that, I think that's been consistent, but, yeah, it's a, it's a fair, it's a fair question. It, like, it's a fair question. Yeah, it is. It's hard to look back when, um, I was talking to a fellow named Sam Robertson a while ago and he was talking and factually it was one of the ones that I shared with you, but he was always saying, it's kind of hard to look back with a, a future lens on other things that you'd, <laughs> you'd done in the past. Cause it, it was what it was at the time. But, uh, yeah, it was, it was just, it occurred to me, or occurred to me and I was kind of interested in what your thought would be around that. So you, you, you find football or f- football finds you. And so where does that take you? Is that what drives your um, university educational choices or are you, are you recruited or where does the oh, next man. step of yeah. your life kind of go at that point? Well, yeah, uh, this will be, this will be, I, I think this might be interesting uh, to walk through even personally uh, for me, cause it's been a while since I've, I've shared anything like this. Uh, you know, what really, took hold, I'll say that was impactful. Like there's, you know, sports illustrated this ESPN, the magazine, or these, Mm -hmm. these, these are things you're familiar with. Mm -hmm. There were two issues of this magazine that I come across in my life that have, that have really steered, like steered me early. Right. And one was, this was like in March of 2001, no more Garcia para. He was a shortstop for the Red Sox. He's like pictured shirtless on this magazine. I mean, he looks just jacked out of his mind and he was on this journey to hit 400. And I read this as a freshman in high school and the article described the sort of physical training that he was doing at, at that time, athletes performance, right? So this was mm-hmm. this introduction with Mark Verstegen and what they were doing, right? And mm-hmm. I, I connected with this as like, okay, well, this, I need to do something like this for football because I know I'm not trying to hit 400, but I'm, I'm really trying to improve. So like, what is this guy doing to, to improve? And this, I got so specific and I mean, I, uh, you know, this is the sort of support my parents gave me, but like, you know, he was drinking the metric shakes, if you can recall Mm -hmm. metrics, Mm -hmm. you know, and I was, I was sort of asking my mom, could we, could we include this? Uh, you know, I was, I was having my metric shakes for breakfast before lifts. Um, and then a bit later, there was an article on uh, David Boston, who was a wide receiver for the Arizona Cardinals, who had actually trained with Charles Poliquin. All right. And it was, I would say like another spark of someone who was making this massive transformation that, that may have been chemically enhanced as I understand in retrospect. But at that time, I was just really compelled with what this guy was doing around the sport. So mm. 
I'm sort of walking a parallel life at this point where um, I'm succeeding in track, right? I would say that I was, I was more of a standout track athlete compared to football. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think that any of the recruiting that I received was really probably like generated by track times like that. That's what the initial interest was. Um, but this parallel walk of like physical preparation and the sport uh, is going hand in hand. And I would say that I was as interested at this age in the preparation as the sport itself. Mm-hmm. I was consuming, you know, men's health, muscle and fitness, flex magazine, anything I could get my hands on. The internet was in a different stage at that time, but um, it was really just full, full on immersion. So my initial experience with, well, my, my entire experience with college athletics though is actually a short one where despite, you know, that foundational interest, I go to Georgia tech and because I was at Georgia tech, it's an engineering school. And because, you know, you notice I didn't really get any better at figuring out what I wanted to do. I mean, I decided that I wanted to be a football player, but I was an undecided engineer, which is just this, you know, complete general term for, um, you know, anything you might pursue at that institution, very undirected. Um, and I play a year of sport, but I suffered a, a, a back injury through this process um, that actually became quite quite limiting, right? Mm. Um, and there was a period of time where I tried to I tried to continue to compete uh, as a as a freshman my first year, but um, it was it became clear to me that the sport was the sport was kind of closing for me at that time, and and with it came um, some academic failure that mm. at that point was fairly novel to me, right? Because as I was working through high school, you know, I didn't cultivate because I was so obsessed with training. I didn't really cultivate habits to study. Um, I was not someone who was reading the assignments, you know, I was relying on spark notes and cliff notes, et cetera. You know, I just, I really wasn't as engaged with school as I would have liked to be save for like a senior physics class that, that mm. put a little spark in my brain of there's something there that I need to maybe return to. Mm. Um, but I did really poorly academically in those first two semesters. And then I started exploring, you know, how to get through the sort of the back injury. Um, and this, this leads me to a couple of surgeries that pulled me out of school for, for a while, you know, like mm-hmm. I, I, I left, uh, I left Georgia tech. I moved home. I moved back to my hometown and the totality of my focus was kind of on recovery and repair. Um, because after, maybe not being successful with the initial, uh, you know, the initial operations, um, which of course, like I, I'm sure that you can respect this. Like, I'm not sure that I was doing what I was supposed to be doing as a patient. Um, but that was more based on, you know, that wasn't, that's ignorance more than, uh, uh, you know, more than, more than anything. Um, but there's like this abyss that I sort of fall into, um, when, you know, at this point, I really didn't know what I wanted to do. Uh, mm-hmm. and, and I was even having an interface of like, okay, am I going to be in persistent pain? Like what, like what is going to be the outcome of the story? And through it all, I would say that while football fell away and I became a fan, not a player, the thing that didn't fall away was this, was this obsessive devouring of like training material and actually mm-hmm. reading and visualizing the sort of training that I might do when I was better became this magnet, you know, that sort of like pulled me forward. Um, and I was still trying to engage with what, uh, you know, experts at this time, again, I'm, I'm working with mostly print media here, but like what experts were, 
were saying. And then I would just say, okay, well, when I'm, when I'm at a point in rehabilitation from, you know, the most recent surgery that I'd had at that time, which was multiple, it was like, I'm going to start training like an athlete again. I'm going to do, you know, the program in, in X magazine. So if you'll allow me to just kind of continue, cause I'm Go going ahead. to answer, yeah. yeah, I'm going to answer your question eventually. Um, but, uh, I came across an issue of men's health magazine with a workout of the month, um, from Robert Dos Remedios. He used to be in the college of the canyons. I'm not sure if you know, coach Dos. I, I know him. Yeah. Yeah. Coach Dos is, you know, this, this was maybe the first thing that I identified with because it's like, okay, here's a college strength coach. That sounds like college football. I identify with this in a magazine that I've been reading. Um, and this was like, I'm just going to, to start trying this kind of, kind of on my own. Um, in that book, uh, is a nutrition chapter by Mike Roussel, right. Which sort of pulled me into, he had published a your naked nutrition guide. It was like a self-published nutrition guide, which then, and you'll just, it's a ping pong, right? That then introduces me to John Berardi's work through precision mm -hmm. nutrition, um, which eventually I find my way onto a blog of a guy named Nate Green. Do you know Nate Green? I don't uh, know he, Nate Green. Yeah. The other yeah, name so he, far he so would, good, but not that one. Yeah. Um, well, Nate, Nate is, uh, you know, Nate was like a young guy, right? So, so far I'd been encountering people who were far into their career, but Nate Green was a fairly young guy. He was young twenties. I think he's maybe only two or so years ahead of me. And he was blogging about fitness and about these individuals, right? He was, uh, taking more. Now he had a personal training background, but he identified himself more as a writer about fitness than a fitness professional himself. And, the reason I identified, he was just closer in age and I didn't feel like an expert. So it's like, this was a person who was peering in on the experts and would go to conferences to interface with John Berardi and Alan Cosgrove and Joe DeFranco and all these other guys at this time. Um, and I felt like that was something that I might be able to do, right? Because uh, my physical state at this point was not someone who was going to ever be an athlete again. And I didn't have the scientific background at this time to like think about coaching really. Um, but, a but, a a switch flipped at this moment of like, okay, well I could maybe write about fitness because I've been told by English teachers before that I write well, and maybe this could be like my vehicle for this. Um, Nate green released a book in the fall of, I want to say it's like the fall of 2008, uh, called built for show. And it was like, just perfect for me. Right. It, it was a workout that I felt like I could do and it was designed, you know, to, you know, make yourself, you know, enhance your physique for girls and life and et cetera. It was just speaking to me at this point in my life, but it was, if you could buy the book uh, and you were one of like the first 20 people who bought it, show him the receipt, he would schedule a call with you, like a 30 minute phone call, something like this. So I jumped to this opportunity, right? I was probably, you know, I pre-ordered the book because this is the guy I wanted to talk to. Um, and he honored, he honored the offer. Uh, we jump on the phone and I had maybe two basic questions for him at that moment of my life, right? Like number one was how, how can I do what you do? Um, which he gave me a pretty simple framework for this. He said that you could either, you know, sort of peer into fitness like I'm doing and write about it, or you can go on the path of becoming one of these individuals yourself. And the sooner you can sort of make that bifurcation, I think he said, the more successful you're going to be. So, um, with that information, I said, okay, I need to 
when I go back to school, which is forthcoming, I, I need to pursue journalism because journalism is going to be the support system to write about the people that I want to write about and the things mm-hmm. I want to write about. So that was one decision that was made. The second one was me honestly saying, Nate, I've been through a tough time orthopedically, right? I've had some surgeries, not really getting better. With your connections, who do you know who might be able to like help me out more on a client-patient basis? You know, not not someone I could learn from, like someone who could maybe pull me through this. Uh, and he gave me the name of uh, Mike Robertson and Bill Hartman. So they're uh, they're both of those guys are in Indianapolis. Mike's a strength coach and Bill's a PT. Um, he said, "I think you should go see these guys." So. A few months later, I'm back in school um, in in earnest for really the first time in maybe two or three years, um, and I'm pursuing journalism. Uh, I actually added a nutrition minor because I thought that you know that would be something interesting uh, uh, and that would assist me in writing. The college registrar didn't know really what the heck I was on. I mean, they were they, they had no idea how to advise someone asking for that. Uh, but then I took a trip up to Indianapolis for uh, around my birthday in 2009 uh, to meet with Bill and Mike. And Mike Robertson performed sort of like a biomechanical assessment and then would go on and and write some programming. But but it was through this relationship that I started developing with Mike Robertson, um, who's been, you know, an incredible mentor throughout my whole life, uh, that I started to, I think, learn a bit more about the dare I say science of, of training, you know, there's so much, Mm -hmm. there's so much uh, subjectivity to it, but like, I was starting to see myself improve once again when given the right uh, when given the right dose, right? And, and what he was doing, I mean, it was it was fairly basic S and C with I think like motor control training thrown in. I mean, Mike had a powerlifting background, and he was sort of getting me back to being comfortable handling just some load. And honestly, I had not loaded my my body for quite some time because of all the you know sort of fear and and uncertainty and anxiety that's associated with this. So. Um, this, this is, this is sort of what pulls me out of that abyss, right? Is this Mm -hmm. idea of of once again, sort of training myself into a state of comfort. And through this process, I'm sort of developing a friendship with Mike and Mike is speaking at the perform better summit, which I'm not sure if you're familiar with these conferences. I've spoken at it before. Oh, wonderful, man. Uh, so in the summer, in this, in this summer of 2009, Mike is speaking there. Um, and following Nate Green's advice, it was, I should just go to this, right? This would be a great networking opportunity for me. Um, so I go, I go to the conference. Uh, my parents supported me, paid, paid my way. Um, and this was really the, this, like, this was the switch, right? Because I went there with this intent of meeting people. So I bought a bunch of books that I was going to walk up to the presenters and provide the book and try to network. Right. Um, and you know, first presenter day one, John Berardi, uh, you know, who at this point I hadn't really grasped what a, you know, how impressive, uh, Dr. Berardi is. Um, cause obviously he's done much since this point. Um, but I, but I made that connection, Alan Cosgrove, Mike Boyle, Greg Cook, uh, you know, obviously Mike and Bill were there. Uh, Alvar Meal was there. I mean, it just was like this explosion of all the people that I had ever read about all the people I had ever known in one place. And I was having, di- you know, I was, I was in dinners with these individuals and I was just captivated and, I sort of made a decision at this point that I wanted to do that. You know, Mm -hmm. it it was, I I go back to the Nate green. Do you want to write about these people or do you want to do what they do? It was like, I think I want to kind of do what they do. Like that's going to be my, that's going to be my thing. 
Um, and it was really at that moment where there was sort of a bifurcation in life of, okay, I'm putting, I'm putting my, uh, I'm putting my focus like in this direction. Mm-hmm. Um, and I would say with some deviations, I haven't, I haven't really looked back since I would say mm-hmm. I'm, I'm still, I'm still on, I'm still on that journey. Hmm. What is it about you in your own self-discovery that you recognize um, allowed you not to be despondent or um, lost in that situation rather than finding it as a, an inspiration to create change in yourself? Well, it's like reflecting on that, but then reflecting on other despondent times, right? Because like, that's not the only abyss, but there mm-hmm. it, it's been this ability. Um, and actually, I mean, I've, I've, I've described it this way to like athletes, for example, where it's this ability to sit in that moment with maybe the emotions and the despair and, you know, really feel those because like they're, they're real. Um, but then be able to observe yourself from a higher level as Mm. someone who is transiently experiencing those things and that they, and that they will pass. Right. It's like allowing grief, allowing that grace and knowing that in the end there's going to be a resurgence. Right. Um, Jim Collins gives this, uh, he, he describes in, um, in some of his work, the Stockdale paradox, if you're familiar, Mm. where Mm. it's this, it's like this willingness to accept the brutal facts of the moment with this undying sort of like resolute focus that Mm. you will prevail, you know? Mm -hmm. Um, and Mm -hmm. I'm sure that sounds somewhat like a platitude, but I can think of times in life, particularly after this initial deviation, when this was like something very concrete that I would think through, you know, Mm. that, you know, sit in the moment and accept the fear, but then realize that, that there's, there's an outcome. And and by Mm -hmm. having that magnet, which once I sort of stumbled into what I've stumbled into, it's been sort of this pursuit that I could always fall back into, right? Mm -hmm. Because um, there's just so much opportunity for growth and self-improvement on really any career path, but I've found uh, a well of interesting things Mm -hmm. to learn um, on my own journey uh, that that's always, that's always kind of pulled me through. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I find it interesting too. You're, um, partly because I, I jive with it because that's what I, I'm a therapist and performance coach at the same time. So I've been, done that all my career. So when you are kind of going through this, some of the people you're talking about are influencers more in, I would say the performance realm. And then there are a few in there that you talked about who were more in the therapeutic realm. So what drives your decision to be, become a physical therapist um, and not just a strength coach and why, why do you, why do you combine the two of them? Like wh- what's that sort of, uh, lens that, uh, ex- of exploration that sort of gets you to mediate both pathways in some sense. Yeah, definitely a fair question. So uh, succinctly, it's probably the combination of two people. So Bill Hartman is one, um, who's really been, you know, just the, of, of having many mentors throughout this journey, uh, just an, like incredible human. Um, and I'll probably describe a bit of that. And the other one would be Eric Cressy, who I know has been a, a guest on your show. So, mm-hmm. um, just to pick up the story a little bit, uh, is I ended up after sort of changing this direction saying like, this is something I want to pursue. Mm-hmm. Uh, I sought an internship at the gym that Mike and Bill, 
uh, ran Indianapolis fitness and sports training. So this is like in the summer of 2010, I wanted to go and be, and be an intern. Um, and I, and I went there for sure thinking that I wanted to be a strength coach. Like I, at this point was a strength coach and physical therapy was not in a meaningful way on my radar. In fact, I'd had, uh, poor experiences with physical therapy thus far. Mm -hmm. And I, I, it really wasn't something that I identified with, um, which I guess in the form that I received it, I probably still don't identify with it, (laughs) but like it, it, it would be hard to overstate how impressive meeting Bill was in person uh, when I got to spend time with him. Right. Mm -hmm. Because there was an article on T nation at this time, uh, you know, that became like another well of information for me that described him as the smartest man in fitness. And this was something that he, you know, I think, I think he was, he was embarrassed by it because Bill is so growth minded. This is someone who's like, he's always revising uh, his mental models, et cetera. Um, So that's just not something that he would ever want to be known in, but from experiencing it firsthand, I had never met anyone like this because this was someone who while, while being a practicing physical therapist, I mean, this guy worked workers compensation day in and day out. I mean, at a grind of an environment would seamlessly put on the hat of someone who not just a strength coach, like this guy was into like, he was digging into the Russian manuals when I, when I got there. Right. Mm -hmm. So it was trying to explore, like, how could you link, rehabilitation principles with at this time, I think that ART Thomas Myers's anatomy trains work, Shirley Sarman, like these were sort of more contemporary rehab models. How could that pair with, you know, um, the conjugate sequence, like some of, some of like Verkashansky stuff. And, um, you know, I, I recall definitely going through block periodization that summer assurance book and trying to program sort of like cellulose based energy systems for an athlete that we were working with while he was undergoing a wrist rehab. And I was like, this just blew my mind that <laughs> someone was, was connecting all these ideas because it was all the physical training that I was so interested in, but it was channeled through this mm-hmm. knowledge where physical therapy was not a discipline in and of itself, but it might be a career path that gave you access to perspective skills with your hands, knowledge of uh, anatomy, physiology, et cetera it became like a compliment to the training in a way. Mm. So certainly the bug bit me at that moment of like, okay, this sort of dual credential pathway is interesting insofar as it, it services this. And then around the same time, I think it was maybe in the subsequent school year, Charlie Weingroff did a podcast with Mike. And this was now the second exposure of someone who had come from a different walk. I mean, Charlie's powerlifting background uh, was, was a bit different than what Bill was into, you know, athletically. But again, here was someone who was like very much coming from a home base of training. And I, I believe Charlie described himself as a strength coach first. And these two individuals, like simply their existence was like, okay, that I identify with this. And the following summer, 2011, I went and interned with Eric Cressy. And this was maybe the nail in the coffin when I sort of posed this career scenario to Eric. And he just said, like, you, and I was really at this point, I'll be honest with you, uh, just in full transparency, I was thinking about medical school because I had just sort of like the biochemistry and, uh, you know, like this, this becomes a passion pursuit and even still is right. So it was like, okay, well, what's, what's going to be the best thing to service all these, Eric just sort of flatly gave me the advice that, that the, the, the PT allows the PT degree, DPT degree allows you to maybe be the most flexible within this environment. And like, if you see yourself servicing anything in, in high performance, 
he felt like that was the right pathway to go. Um, so after Bill, Charlie, and then now Eric, I've just gotten like this consistent advice. It's like, this is it. This is what I need to, this is what I need to, to go in on. Um, yeah, really, because it gave me an excuse to keep learning about training stuff though, you know, cause that's, <laughs> it's, it's the, it's the cool, it's the cool, it's the coolest stuff out there, man. It's nice hearing your story about Bill. I, I think I would have got along with him very well. I've never met him, but, uh, that, that, all the names and the and the influences and the frameworks and the thought processes are like I jive with that very much. So it's kind of cool to hear your story so far. Um, so tell me, uh, you know, once because sometimes you have the impression that that's you've been given the impression that's the way to go, but then you get into the academic stream and it becomes somewhat frustrating because it doesn't live up to these mentors that you've run into and their free thinking and and, uh, and more expanded thinking, and all of a sudden you're in these classrooms with people who maybe don't think that way who are teaching to you or what have you. So how is the academic? Um, process um for you after having had such amazing mentors uh, at that point quick break here we'll be back with our guest not going to mince words here it doesn't matter whether your operating environment is a clinical space or your operating environment is the performance gym or training space these two worlds live together synchronously it's important to understand the continuum of injury to performance wherever you come in at it or inject yourself within it bottom line is you are going to be a better practitioner and your clients are going to have better results if you understand the whole continuum and you understand how to best use all the skills that you have in the right space at the right time with the right decision making and that's what the operating system neural reconditioning does it brings the worlds of therapy and performance together under applied neurology it gives you the answers to your questions about where to do what and when and at the end of the day, why the person is dealing with the problems that they're dealing with, either performance-centric problems or injury-centric problems. We want to eliminate those, make more robust individuals, and take care of our clients in the best way possible. So become a reconditioning practitioner today. We have courses uh, starting at R1 Foundations, taking you to R2 Designs, and then the R3 Colab, wherever you need to keep going or start. These courses are available on our site at www.reconditioninghq.com. We have two Alive R1 Foundations coming up in November, and we also have all our online products and applications. So take a look at what we're doing today. We invite you to ch- take your practice to another level. Okay, I'm going to keep this one simple. I mean, if you're looking for equipment to fill your facility that's brand new and you want to deck it out with the best in the business or you need somebody to help you decide what to put in your facility and organize it, structure it, or you just want to build a home gym or a home facility, or you need a specific piece of equipment to to serve a specific uh, purpose in your human performance system. Matrix Fitness 
Dot-com has an answer for you, and the people there are into making sure that you get what you need, that you are served, and that effectively your problem is solved. So it's easy. If you've got a problem or an issue or something you need to get, uh, then it comes to serving the human performance needs of your clients or yourself, head over to matrixfitness.com today and check out what they have. You won't be disappointed. Maybe you've suffered burnout, maybe you've been challenged with decision making or how to balance a life of fatherhood and being at home or a partnership. Maybe it's just simply overwhelming to be in the work that you're doing or you just don't know how to make the right decision in the right direction for the right reasons. There could be a whole host of things that you're challenged by in the human performance industry. But basically, the reason we started the Leave Your Mark Life Lab is to support and help professionals get through what it takes to be a human performance professional in today's world of performance. This lab is for anyone. It doesn't have to be just a human performance professional. We've had a group of great people uh, going through our first cohort, and so far the feedback has been unbelievable. Everybody is thriving within it and learning new skills and capacities and strategies to navigate life and make better decisions and to live a more fulfilling life. And that's really what my goal is, both through the podcast and through the LYM Life Lab. So if you're interested in applying for the next cohort, which opens in October, simply head over to lymlab.com and you can download two free videos, which will take you through some of the stuff that we're doing initially. And you can also read about the Leave Your Mark Life Lab on the Life Lab page. Get clarity on what we're doing, what we get into, and what we play with during the next year. So would love to have you involved. Go over and apply today if it interests you to live a more fulfilling life. We're back. Enjoy the podcast. Well, at least through the end of undergraduate school, I didn't put too much pressure on it, right? Because I think I had a fairly, I know that everyone's in a different place with this and there's certainly any opportunity. You get talking, like if we steered this podcast in a direction of what's being taught in academic curricula and is it that valuable to practitioners? I think it's very easy to be critical of what school, like the environment that's, or maybe the skills that school is bestowing upon you. Um, and I think if you would have asked me early in my career, I would have been really, you know, maybe even let down by it. I think in, I think in retrospect, I have a better grasp for maybe what school is trying to, what the classes that I was in, like what they were trying to distill to me, because there was nothing I could have learned at 23 years old in an exercise physiology course that would have broken enough ground to make a meaningful impact on what I'm like actually doing with patients. You know, like all mm-hmm. the learning in life comes later on. It comes from application failure, et cetera. Mm-hmm. And I think some students are frustrated that they're not provided more of this applied, like they're not, they're not given those tools early. Mm-hmm. And maybe in reflection, I would say that I probably wouldn't have even been ready to deal with them. And mm-hmm. it was more important that I learned how to be a good student. It mm-hmm. was more important that I learned how to study, how to read and just get like a basic framework for you know, what is an enzyme? What is glycolysis? Like some of these basic, just the landscape so that I could, it could foster future self-education, you know? Mm-hmm. So I don't have like this really, I, 
that wasn't my experience in undergrad. I mean, I remember, I remember distinctly being difficult for some professors because I might fight for points back on a test that I'd already done well on because I felt like I had completely answered the question, you know, and I'm, and I'm, and that was maybe a unique experience for them. But, uh, it, it got a little worse for me in this way because when I was finishing undergrad and I applied to physical therapy school, um, I only applied to like one school and I didn't get in. So I had put all my eggs in this basket of like, this is what I want to do. And I initially didn't get in. And, and if we can go back to an earlier phase in my story, much of this Mm -hmm. is because my GPA was still suffering from my freshman experience when I basically became, you know, apathetic to school for a back injury and I'm having to deal with, you know, like two semesters worth of bad grades. So, um, though I had done what, you know, really competitively in school, once sort of restarting, just initially GPA, I might've been ruled out as like an early applicant. So I graduate undergrad, um, without, without a landing place, you know? So I'm trying to figure out how I'm going to spend the next year of my life to get ready to reapply to school. And I lean once again on mentors, right? So, uh, call up Mike Robertson, Bill Hartman, say, look, this is my situation. Is there anything available? Um, and no, no coaching positions available. They're in a great spot at their gym. And I don't know that this is true, but part of me feels like they may have invented a need for an administrative assistant to just sort of run the front desk, right? And handle emails, client relations, contracts, et cetera, you know, sort of a minimum wage 20 to 30 hour a week position, you know? Um, and that wasn't going to make ends meet, uh, but I had some money um, that I had sort of stored away. Thankfully, I had a, a great aunt who was so gracious in her giving to our entire family. Um, but it was it would allow me some financial overhead for maybe a year uh, to be able to pursue this. So I moved back to Indianapolis with the idea that I would work for Mike and Bill for a year. Um, two weeks into this, uh, after the move, you know, the physical therapy school that I applied to Emory calls and says like, Hey, we actually found a position open for you. So I'm immediately faced with a decision of, okay, well, do I pull out of this? These people have taken me under their wing. They've taken me in, uh, and go get back on my journey. Right. Because I'm, I want to be this meteoric rise. I want to get this over with. Um, but I decided to, to prolong, uh, the immediate satisfaction of jumping into physical therapy school. Mm. Um, and spend that year with, with Mike and Bill and Mm. without question, without question, uh, this is the, one of the most formative, uh, periods of my life. Um, because in the, in the combination of, of, you know, sort of like on-ramping administrative skills, these were things that were within my bandwidth. Um, I was in like learning mode, you know, full time. Um, and Mm. I was, I was really trying to devour, uh, reading recommendations from Bill. I was in this laboratory to apply, um, what I was, what I was learning, but more than anything was just this collegial respectful exploration that I would say that, uh, Mike, Bill, and I were on at that time to, um, I I don't know, man, try, try to figure out a better way, uh, to approach, uh, just training assessment in general. Um, we ended up, you know, I contributed to a course that they ended up teaching, uh, on, on assessment at that time. It was called diagnosis fitness. And, um, I was tasked with like teaching the, you know, sort of the bioenergetic section of the course. And this was something again, where I had this freedom to really get to the bottom of this topic and, and understand, you know, what, 
what do I believe? I was influenced by Joel Jameson's work and Donna Sedkin's work and selling all these things. And it was like getting to put that together and actually present that to other fitness professionals, like unbelievable growth experience. Um, and then simply so many meals shared courses taken with bill, you know, we would, we would go to weekend courses and, and, and devour the material over the weekend. And then we'd go to Outback Steakhouse afterwards and we'd talk about it. We talked about how it influenced, you know, what our practice was. And, you know, if this just, whatever trajectory I was on this, this modified it exponentially. So to answer your question, it's like, I was not just going into academics or physical therapy school, you know, after a few of these internship experiences, I mean, I had really done what I'd wanted to do for, for a year, you know, I'd, mm-hmm. I'd, I'd worked with humans and I'd been around, you know, really, I think top level practitioners, um, who, again, they were just so gracious to allow me the opportunity to sort of explore and play in their environment. When I went back to PT school, again, I lowered my expectations because I knew like, there's no way that school is going to deliver the experience that I just had. So what could I get out of school? Like, how could I extract the most from school? And while Mm -hmm. I think that, uh, certainly in the clinical coursework, um, you know, I was not, I was not getting contemporary or, you know, uh, diverse thought or, or clinical models, et cetera. And I didn't, demand that school provided that. But what I was really blessed to get, I think, was a was a top class education in um, physiology, right? Mm-hmm. Like the, it, I, that particular subject, there's a um, Patricia Nichols who's been teaching the subject at Emory in the, in the, med, in the medical school um, to both, you know, both medical students, physical therapy students, et cetera. I mean, she just has a wealth of experience. She's published in the area of teaching physiology. She he presented the subject, which was now maybe my third time through the material because it's like get physiology as an undergrad. And then I got exercise physiology as I started to refine, but like in earnest, this was the first time I got physiology mm-hmm. and the mechanics of the systems that she was describing, the mental modeling, the framework for it, it, it just ignited something within me that was like, okay, this is a tool that I can use for the rest of my life. I still have these notes on my, you know, on my bookshelf because mm. they're the most succinct, they're, they're the best physiology information I've ever come across. So I went all in on that. And she also taught the neuroscience course or, or a portion of the neuroscience course. So for me, it was like school was about extracting the best basic science education that I could find because that was the time that I needed to do it. Uh, because I sort of knew at this point what I wanted to do clinically. I mean, I was very purposeful and very and short-sighted and ignorant in many ways about trying to establish clinical rotations as a student that I, that serviced a model of of treatment that maybe is less valuable to me now, though um, at the time I was very interested in it. Uh, but I really put pressure on myself to extract the science because that was something that if you're not in that environment and you're not being rigorously tested uh, on the material, like, I think it's hard to push yourself to acquire, like, the real root-level basic science knowledge, I mean, like, all the way down to the atoms and the molecules. Mm-hmm. Um, that's going to be the most beneficial down the road when you want to go then learn, like, you know, start taking, uh, this is my sort of Sam Gibbs connection that I told you, but try to follow in Sam's path. And, and you know, he's talking about psychoneuroimmunology, and that's really, that's not a course in physical therapy school, so how the heck do you learn that? Um, I think you you learn it, you learn it by by having a really strong basic science foundation, and then using, like, building these things up from first principles. Hmm. Um, so, school was a gift in that regard, you know, and that's, and I have a really positive 
uh, I, I had a really positive experience. And then there was this connection, this parlay with Emory at the time uh, was launching this uh, DPT PhD. So it was a dual, it was a dual degree. And they sort of approached me in my second year and said like, Hey, we, we think you're, you know, because I, because of course I was, you know, I was like the one kid in my class who was really going all in on the basic sciences. They were like, you're kind of the right candidate for something like this. So in many ways I was like forging that pathway between the two institutions, which interest like almost serendipitously back to the same institution that I left nearly, you know, uh, uh, you know, almost a decade previously, mm. uh, as an athlete, I was going back into their PhD program, um, to go the research route to sort of pursue research because this was fostering this basic science interest. And it wasn't from a position of, I wanted to be like an, an, an academic, you know, within those confines. I, I remember even asking my advisor at the time, like, I plan to take this PhD and like transmute this into industry very quickly, right? Like I'm looking to get even further into the first principles at this, at this point, I was really interested in neuroscience and there was a neuroplasticity lab that I was, that I was associated with. And that's really what I was looking for was just gaining some great insight into critical thinking research, the research process. But I intended on getting back to training, like at some point, you know, and I don't know that they love that answer uh, because they seem to appreciate maybe lifers or people who are going to continue to contribute to the system. They didn't love the idea of someone, you know, using NIH money to sort of service a career at, at one point in high performance. But um, anyway, I, I was I was trying to be helpful as a liaison for them to get this off the ground. So mm. that that sort of became even after my clinical rotations, I was I was sort of committing to to life as an academic, um, mm. you know, just to get deeper into the deeper into the rabbit hole. Very cool. Yeah. I, I really love listening to your story. Um, and for the listener, one of the things I want to pull a thread on is, you know, I often in the mentorship work that I do, I'll often tell younger professionals that don't be in such a rush to, to make it all happen. And what I heard you sort of express in some ways inadvertently, but at the same time, also there's, it, it seems like you pondered quite a bit, these, these call them breaks in the process where you were able to sort of chew on real life while you kind of figured out what you wanted to do academically. And when you look back at that, though, it wasn't necessarily you know, intentionally crafted, do you think that that was a better way or a, a powerful way to have arrived where you are now having these kind of breaks where you actually played in the sandpit and then came back and sort of said, what about, what do I need to know more about the sandpit in some sense? Absolutely. Right. And it's uh, just to return. I mean, it's, it's block periodization. I mean, that that's, I, 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 and Bill told me this in 2010 that like your, your learning is like, what the Russians were trying to do is sort of like systematically, you know, give the sportsman skill, you know, and they had, they had figured out some, some, some really interesting ways to do this. But I think what's played out over my life is these accumulation phases, right. Mm -hmm. That have intensified themselves. And then I've been given a respite to uh, realize the adaptations that mm -hmm. maybe I'd gained through that process. Mm -hmm. And in block periodization, there's that the realization phase sort of feeds the next accumulation phase. What do you need to acquire? What do you need to throw volume at to improve? And then I'm going to work that up to competition and then you repeat. And the breaks in my life have given me an opportunity to realize, you know, like what 
what have I accumulated to this point? Um, but then really in a concerted way, like what's the next thing that I need to go all in on? Um, because I'm very much like, I'm very much still this way. Now the professional sports environment doesn't really provide these respites in a mm-hmm. way where it's maybe a, a day here or a week in the off season that, that we get an opportunity to, 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 to sort of collect thoughts. But every time I do, I come away with, um, a little bit more direction as to, uh, maybe, a, a subject area or something that I need. Um, to improve our organization. Like what, what is, what is the next thing? And um, that constant uh, finding the weak link or the constraint in the system, like in the Mm. current system that you're working in Mm. um, and going all in on that constraint rather than sort of spreading your focus. Mm. uh, This, this is like, this is the pattern. Ray Dalio calls it looping, but like this, this seems to be the approach that, that, that works for me. Um, And unfortunately it's never ending, but like I said, it's, that's a, that's part of the enjoyment. (laughs) Yeah, you have uh, that realization that you just it, it, you keep ascending. That's the way life works. You don't get to put the brakes on, and and, and well, yeah, nor, the, nor nor would your brain want to do that <laughs> in some sense, I guess. Yes, but the but the but critically, I would say the ascension is is based on um, you know sort of the problems and the failures of the of like the present moment. I mean, they're 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 quite profound teaching tools. Um, I think that you know we're jumping ahead in the story a bit, but like accepting the role. Uh, of a manager, which, you know, has been, uh, an, an incredibly profound, humbling experience. Uh, it, it, it's, you realize how much of the outputs in your life are bottlenecked by you, right? Like I think as you're an, if you're an individual contributor, it's, it's easier to blame the system that you're a part of. And I think there's mm-hmm. probably some truth to this. Like, you, you know, you dig into the systems research, you learn about bounded rationality, things like this. It's like, as an individual contributor, the system can constrain you in certain ways. But when you are the constructor of the system, or you are the sort of the governor of the system, um, a, lo- a lot more of it is, is your own, is your own limitations, your own bottlenecks. Mm-hmm. And mm-hmm. it's really about how quickly you can identify the ways that you're holding your team back um, and how, quickly and thoughtfully can you resolve um those things and 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 that requires you to sort of quickly get to the right answers and w- again whatever subject matter whatever whatever sort of like discipline um services you so mm-hmm. it's uh yeah it's it's a uh, it's it's i mean it's incredible it's like really enjoyable you know but uh but if not if not for that failure you really don't know what to learn mm-hmm. yeah i like i want to unpack that a little bit i just want to understand how you make that leap like uh, from what i read in your bio you were into a phd and 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 then some kind of opportunity comes to you with the grizzlies how does that how does that happen um and how how do you set the or not set the the fire logs for that to actually be ignited some this so to speak yeah sure um so again i mean i just have these like flashbulb memories of life and this is an easy one for me uh, so at the time, um, by the way, um, I'm glad I delayed physical therapy school for another reason, because it, it allowed me to, to meet who will become my wife, um, <laughs> by sort of delaying myself a year. Um, and very serendipitously, she was delaying at the same time in another place on earth. And then sort of by us both delaying our entrance a year, we end up, you understand? Um, so there's some magic there, but her and I, uh, are, we were on, we were on, but we were spending spring break at this time, my last spring break ever, um, vacationing, we were skiing in Colorado and the following Monday. Um, so 
the way sort of the NIH stipend works, you kind of have to opt into these on a yearly basis, right? And I've already told you that I'd had this conversation previously, sort of letting my intentions be known to my graduate committee that, hey, I'm doing this more for industry. I appreciate all the help and support I'm going to publish for you, but like this is about me learning some real this is about me learning. It's not about me necessarily producing for the institution. So I was feeling some pressure at this time uh, because I didn't, I didn't really, it's not fair to say that I didn't feel welcome, but I knew that I wasn't their typical student. And it became clear to me that they wanted to provide this money to someone who was committed for the long haul, like committed for a longer period of time. So we flew out to Colorado with an open conversation of it, on Monday, I need to make a decision whether I'm opting in or out of this of this NIH stipend, right? And they're willing to give it to me if I feel like this is something that I want to do. Um, and I'm having an open conversation with her, who's not my wife at this point, but at this point, I, I thought that she would be my wife, of, you know, did life line up for us to stay in Atlanta, to get to the end of this PhD, to chase an academic career, maybe? Like, what did that look like for us, you know? Mm. Um, you know, very, very long-term thinking uh, for, for, you know, a fairly early um, relationship. And at least a day into the trip, I think we both felt comfortable that that was what we wanted to do. You know, like she had another year of school. We loved Atlanta. We had a great friend group. Um, I loved my institution. I loved the idea of learning physiology. Like, like everything was lining up. And we had sort of decided before the last day, like, yeah, we're going to go back. I'm going to opt into that. And this is what life will, this is what life will bring us. Well, Saturday evening, we're out at dinner. Um, and I get a text on my phone from someone who represented the Grizzlies. Um, and at this point I'd had really no external communication in regards to professional opportunities because the people who were in my immediate network sort of knew what I was trying to do. Um, they knew that academics was the way that I was trending. Um, but, uh, Doug Kachichin, who, uh, out of New- works out of New York, resilient, uh, uh, is his company. Um, he had been having conversations with the Grizzlies about, I think at that time he was maybe considering, uh, at least being interviewed for a role for the team, whatever. Um, and it wasn't going to work out for him personally, right? He was starting a, a, a business and his wife had a great, um, had a, had a great career going, uh, in New York and moving to Memphis was not something that was interesting to him. And he had shared my name with the team and said, Hey, you should probably check this guy out. Uh, Doug is someone I know through Bill. Right. So here's another Bill Hartman connection. Um, mm-hmm. uh, so many, so much of any success I've had in life is, is, is due to this man. Uh, but the team reaches out and at dinner, someone who's connected to the owner of the team calls my cell phone and I need to step away from dinner. It's snowing outside. I'm in a button up, you know, because I'm, I'm obviously a bit flustered. Like this is, this is a great opportunity. And I go stand outside and, you know, freezing cold weather. Um, and I talk about, physical preparation and sort of my approach and philosophies and my experiences for maybe 90 minutes or so, um, uh, to this individual. And at the end of the call, uh, he says, I want to bring you in for, for an interview. Um, can you, can you make Tuesday work? So here I'm going on the trip committed to a PhD for the next five, whatever years on Monday, I need to opt into this. Or do I take the, do I take the interview on Tuesday, uh, with the Grizzlies and sort of risk it? Because if I take that interview, I, I need to tell the I need to tell my uh, grad advisor I'm out of this, you know, like I'm I'm going to do something else. So 
reorients the conversation with my wife and girlfriend I've, at the time. Yeah. Oh yeah. Right. Right. Girlfriend <laughs> at the time, but, but strong knowledge. That this is yeah, my yeah. wife. Okay. That maybe the, maybe giving this a shot was worth it. Like maybe this is, this is what I'd trained for up to this point was to explore something in this environment and sort of this, uh, you know, Jeff Bezos risk minimization framework, uh, or not risk or rather regret minimization framework. Um, I felt like I would regret turning the Grizzlies opportunity down more than I would regret leaving the PhD simply because the PhD would always be available to me, you know, Mm -hmm. and that's something that's even in the back of my mind today, right? Like I've stepped Mm -hmm. away from this, but I feel a lot of kinship to that institution, that environment. Those are, those are people I really respect. Um, they were very caring of me to get me into it. Um, but there's not like a time limit on that where Mm -hmm. this was a closing window of opportunity to get into something that I had spent a decade sort of preparing my mind and skills for. So I took the interview and I turned down the NIH money, um, and moved away from the PhD and sort of stepped into the void. Hmm. Uh, so I took the interview. Um, this was like in February or so. Uh, and yeah, shortly after, uh, they, they were hiring me on to be at that time, the director of performance, which the Grizzlies at this time were not like, a. I don't want to say, well, I'll just, they were not they didn't have a progressive staff structure. And what I mean by that is it's now very commonplace to talk about high performance managers and directors of performance and, Mm -hmm. you know, expanded staffs. Uh, This was not the case with the Grizzlies. In fact, that's one of the reasons they reached out to Doug in the first place was to say, Hey, we'd like to mimic more of the European Australian model. Like where would you start? Um, And Doug provided them the advice of, well, this, you know, I would start in this, in this particular way, right? Like I would put heads of departments in place, to start to drive a little bit more like interdisciplinary collaboration, et cetera. And again, Mm -hmm. like all your guests have been doing this for a while. Mm -hmm. Um, The Grizzlies were not in that place. So Mm -hmm. I was hired into a role as the director of performance, but my immediate oversight was simply, um, you know, the, 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 really the strength coaches. And I myself was a strength coach, though dual credentialed, I was not being brought in as a rehab professional. I was not being brought in um, to, uh, to work on our medical team. They had a fully formed medical team at that time. Um, so, uh, in many ways, I think that probably helped though. This expands beyond your question because I was immediately constrained in the ways that I could contribute to the company. Right. Mm-hmm. And like it, it, it's not coming in, you have oversight of everything, which would have been ridiculous by the way, because I had, you know, at this time, no managerial experience, right. I'd never really managed another human before. Um, so just learning how to manage two employees early was, probably a, a safer on-ramp to what, mm-hmm. I, what I do now for the team, which is quite different. Um, and it also focused my efforts in, you know, which it, it was split between two disciplines, but it was the management of our nutrition services and strength and conditioning, whatever that means, uh, were sort of some immediate responsibilities. So mm-hmm. I was able to focus my efforts, uh, in, in those areas, um, and go, and go a bit deeper, quite, a, quite deep. And, um, in the nutrition space, actually, because I was kind of, it was a little new to me, um, and made for like a focused and fulfilling on-ramp, uh, in a way where had I stepped into what I currently do, I think I would have been overwhelmed when I was promoted. I was overwhelmed, you know, so I certainly would have been at that, at that moment. (laughs) That's awesome. So I'm going to do a quick segue on you that you're not even going to expect, but how does a, uh, 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 Georgia boy become a skier? Oh, well, uh, not, not, not well. I had, uh, well, my, my skiing experience was minimal at this time. 
Um, I had gone on like a church trip when I was young to ski in West Virginia. Um, so this was like my second time skiing ever. And I was with some pretty adept skiers. Um, I have enough like baseline athleticism to make do, you know, I can moonlight mm-hmm. a little bit. Mm-hmm. Um, but this particular trip, uh, so we were in Vail, Colorado, um, and heavy snowfall. And I don't know what your, what your connection, if you've ever been, but there's like, there's the, there's the trails that are on the front side of the mountain mm-hmm. that, you know, everyone kind of does. Mm-hmm. Um, and, but then there's the back country on the other side of the mountain where it's, mm-hmm. it's fairly, it's fairly like un- unplowed. Um, and I had some adventurous friends, uh, one of whom I, I work with currently, who I just sort of like signed up to go over the mountain. And this again, had skied maybe twice, two days of my life before this. Um, and this was, this was, this was pretty challenging, man, because it was later in the day and the ski lifts were closing in like an hour. So it's like, we got to get in and out in this period of time. And I lost the trail, you know, like I totally lost the trail. I mean, I even remember there was so much snow that I was sort of skiing along the treetops, right? Because there was maybe, you know, 10, 15 feet of snow underneath me and sort of whiteout conditions. And I just remember, you know, I'm sort of in my tuck, just like, I got to get to the bottom of this. And all of a sudden I feel nothing under my skis, you know, like, like it's, it's like there's air under my skis and what probably was a fraction of a second felt like three seconds of me sort of sprawling on my back, you know, just sort of supine, a huge collision. Right. And I'm looking up at the sky. My wife is on the other side of the mountain or future wife again, on the other side of the mountain. Um, wondering where I am. And it was a moment of like, okay, I'm like definitely gonna have to figure this out. You know, like I'm, um, <laughs> uh, thankfully I had one of my classmates from PT school was with me and we were kind of going through this together. But, uh, yeah, I mean, it was sketchy there for a bit, uh, for sure. So, uh, this Georgia boy, um, has, I've been a little bit more conservative, uh, with my, with, with my skiing, uh, since, since. um, yeah, for sure. For sure. Yeah. The risk reward, uh, has, has maybe that balance has shifted a little bit. Yeah. That's uh, a hell of, hell of a center to jump into without much experience. That's for sure. Well, it was wild. I didn't, I, I didn't have a mental model. Cause again, like I don't, again, Georgia boy, like, so I didn't have a mental model that people actually did this, right? Like my, <laughs> my experience was these like highly curated bunny, you know, bunny slopes mm-hmm. on the East coast. Mm-hmm. I had no clue what was waiting for me. can't imagine what it's like up your way. Um, that's just <laughs> another, that's another level for me. <laughs> so, uh, before we come back into how you become a, a, a manager, so to speak, um, when, when do you decide this? What is your gal's name by the way? And when do you decide that she's going to be your wife and how do you, how do you ask her to marry you? Oh, good. Uh, great. Um, so her name is, is Lex, uh, short, short for Alexis question of like, when do I decide? I mean, man, I, I would say it's early. Right. And I've, I've found this, uh, if I can use this as an opportunity to, this is, this is something that has come to me, uh, in management or at least hiring practices is if someone has like superstar potential, really, it's evident. Um, it's evident immediately uh, in in many ways, right? Like this this person, you're you're not going to be able to talk to this person for more than five minutes or so before you realize that they there's something special about them, and they have they might have this ability to like really ascend. And I've seen this pattern. Young career, I have a ton to learn, but I've seen this pattern enough times that when you identify it, you you take it seriously um, mm-hmm. because it's rare that that person will 
let you down. It's not to say that someone who doesn't display that can't grow into those qualities because at some point a super, you know, they become a superstar. But if you catch someone and that's evident, you know, take it seriously. Mm-hmm. On the first date with my girlfriend, future wife, you know, we st- standard date, right? And by the way, she was someone who I had, you know, identified at the gym, you know, like, and I sort of had worked it back to like, Oh, she's actually, she goes to my school. She's in my program. I mean, it was, uh, it was, it, it, it felt, you know, almost surreal. Right. So like, I'm absolutely like, I have a crush existing on with this person, but our first date, you know, we, uh, we went to a bar, um, it's sort of like a craft brew type bar in Atlanta called the Porter that has like every beer you could possibly imagine. Um, cause at that time we're not so much anymore, but we, we enjoyed like a craft brew. So we were looking for something like local uh, and, uh, and we start a conversation that like didn't end until 6am the next morning. And I mean, <laughs> you know, cause I was taking her back after, after the date and it was like, well, do you want to stop hanging out? It's like, well, I don't want to stop hanging out. You know, like I, this is pretty amazing. Um, and I mean, I didn't drop her off until like, I was dropping her off for class the next morning. We just stayed up the whole night and just talked. Hmm. Uh, and that's what I mean about superstar potential is like, I had never had a first date like that in my life. And I Hmm. remember calling, uh, one of my, uh, someone who, another mentor of my life, Lori Thompson, who was a, a clinical mentor, but also just a great personal friend. I called her after I had dropped her off because I had sort of been updating her on this crush that I had. And I was just like, Lori, like, I just had the best date of my life. Like, I, I need to take, like, I need to take this seriously. Um, so Scott, it was probably within, I mean, I don't want to arbitrarily put a timeline on, but it was like within two to three months, this was very clear to me that like, this was a, this was a person of serious interest, um, and someone that I needed to make sure that, you know, we were on the same page professionally because things were really about to change for us because we started dating in the fall. And in the spring, a couple things happened, right? She actually went on clinical rotation. So it became early a distance relationship for us with this Mm -hmm. respect. She's, of course, thinking that she's coming back to an Atlanta that I'll be in for the next five years. But Mm -hmm. then the Grizzlies things pops up. So Mm -hmm. she goes on clinical rotations. Then I get the Grizzlies job. So we sort of break apart in location in a way that we weren't expecting fairly, fairly early. Mm -hmm. So in doing that, if you do, if you don't have that time to really spend and bond with someone, I think it was really important that we got on the same page, not just with values, but like with life purpose. It's like, what are we both trying to accomplish here? Because to have that, um, that openness to, uh, form the distance bond and really like grow a relationship over distance, one that was going to be really meaningful to us. Um, we, we like had to be aligned. So early on, there was intentionality on my part that this was going to be someone that I was going to be spending the rest of my life with. Um, and I, and tried to act in accordance to that. So eventually once she graduated from school, I was able to kidnap her to come join me at, join me in Memphis. Um, <laughs> and then in honestly, what was probably one of the, you know, up to this point, it was one of the most fulfilling weeks, uh, of my life. I, I received, I knew that I was going to, um, ask her to marry me on like this little block of time that we get. Usually the NBA season kind of dies down late August, right before things ramp back up in September. There's sort of this sort of like black week at the Mm. end of August that everyone circles as like that's vacation. So um, I knew I was going to take her out to Big Sur, California, um, ask her to marry me there. This was Mm. a a trip that we had planned. 
And serendipitously, the week prior um, was when I was I was promoted. This is in 2018. I was promoted to what becomes my current position. You know, so I'd worked two years as the as the performance director. And um, at this point, I was I was elevated within a company um, to sort of oversee what, all that we were doing on the uh, sort of in the support staff. So receiving a promotion and then maybe a day later asking my life partner to marry me and then getting to spend a week away with her. Um, I can go back to like the crispness in the air, like the feeling of every moment of that week. Um, it was, it was, it was peak life for sure. Mm, you know, and mm. that's, and that's just an incredibly special, special memory for us. The way I asked her to marry me is we were headed down the Pacific coast highway from San Francisco, headed to big Sur, pulled mm. off into Pfeiffer beach, which is a certainly like, this is a Google images worthy, uh, search. Um, and I'd actually pre-planned, um, I, I, I was getting myself up for needing to propose in front of a lot of people. Um, because it's a it's a common place that a tourist might stop, just like us. I, I thought maybe there's another proposal going on at this time, um, but the beach was bare, man. Like we pull wow. up to this beach, and it's like it's a little cloudy, and maybe that played into it. But we had the whole beach to ourselves, you know. And she was looking out. Um, she was looking out at the ocean, uh, and she paused. I had a plan of how I was going to do this. I wanted to like film myself, all this kind of stuff. But it was one of those where like she just paused long enough to like, okay, this is the moment. Like I got it's go time. Um, so I hit a knee and when she turned back around, uh, I was, I was there. Right. Um, and I think she kind of felt that it was going to happen on that trip, but I, did, I think what surprised her that it was at the outset, cause we were only on the trip for maybe four hours at this point, you know, we had just landed. Um, and then we got to spend, you know, the rest of the trip free of, you know, free of anxiety that there was a proposal coming out of somewhere, you know? Um, and importantly, uh, I didn't have the, uh, I, reality hadn't hit for what the promotion actually meant, uh, professionally. So it was all upside, you know, cause of course you get a promotion and you're really excited about what this can bring. Um, I had no idea, you know, the level of, uh, of challenge that this was going to uh, provide to me personally, to our relationship, et cetera. Um, that's awesome. Yeah. 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 It's actually warm. Yeah. That's beautiful. I feel it because I, I love Big Sur and I, my wife and I did an amazing drive along that, that West Coast Highway as a vacation before we had our daughter. And uh, I, I can't recall the name of the restaurant that sort of hangs over the, the coast and it, it's almost like it's in a tree. There's actually an airplane in the mm. center of the, of the restaurant kind of thing. And it's a beautiful spot, but uh, memories. Yeah. Like you, <laughs> they, they're, they're these positive air, the fresh air and stuff that you smell. Yeah. It's amazing. We actually, uh, you know, after, after uh, the sort of pandemic um, detonated our, our goals of having like a large family wedding. Uh, we actually returned to the the beach and the area in Big Sur and we did like a very compact ceremony. My dad was the officiant. Um, oh, wow. yeah, it, it was, uh, in many ways, I preferred this, um, mm. over what we had originally planned and, and, and her and her family put huge effort into an amazing ceremony in Atlanta it was going to have, you know, a ton of friends and family. Um, but, the inti- the intimacy of getting to do it with just her with just her immediate just her parents uh you know just just my immediate family um and then dad being efficient uh in big sur california like it, very special very special mm. experience for just that group mm. um and then we were able to hold a larger sort of celebration locally um afterwards but 
Um, it's just become like a really meaningful place for us. I mean, it, it's a, it's a, it's a really a bedrock of our relationship. That's awesome. Um, last sort of subject matter so we can wrap this up, but I want to sort of understand what, what have been the greatest challenges in your learning to manage people? Like what, what, what did, like you, you mentioned that boom is going to smoke me when I get back kind of thing. Um, so what smoked you and what have you had to adjust to and in the role that you now have, so to speak? I mean, Scott, there's like, there's no end to this question. So I'll Mm. do, I'll do my best with, with trying to, uh, trying to give you a little bit of a framework. Um, I, I think the thing I mentioned early is some is a realization that I've come into in the sense of like, this is Andy Grove, but the output of a manager is really the output of the individuals that he or she manages, right? Like mm-hmm. this is the framework. Um, I, I was split in my time, right. Where I was, I was the primary medical care provider for, you know, for four of our, four of our players, four primary players, right. So like starters. So they were, they had high, high needs, I I would say. Um, I was handling strength and conditioning additionally for one of those. So I was still living very much a clinical practitioner lifestyle. Um, and up to this point, my brain had been focused on this, right? Like, like when I was in performance only, maybe, Um, I had less managerial responsibilities, which I think was just ignorance on my part because I had managerial responsibilities. I was just abdicating them. Mm. Um, but I was focused on being a great practitioner. So this allowed me to go deep into nutrition science and functional medicine and rehab protocols and manual therapy. You know, I was trying to build my clinical repertoire. Well, now being tasked with managing, you know, what's become, I don't know, man, it's, 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 I don't know if it's 15 people or it's somewhere it's, it's a large, it's a large team now, you know, I was completely aloof to the requirements of what it takes to really care for people. Um, Mm -hmm. because that's what management entails. It's not so much that you're like, they are in your charge, like you are caring for them. Right. And I was totally unprepared, uh, for that responsibility. Um, Mm -hmm. I have, you know, sort of, an ability to build a therapeutic alliance with patients. So it's like some of the interpersonal skills, I think were maybe supportive of becoming better over time. But Scott, initially I was overwhelmed, you know? Mm. So what I thought management was, was coming back from my vacation in Big Sur and putting together a presentation that was my philosophy for the way that we would do things. And I would present concepts and tactics and assume that people would um, sort of, uh, you know, just bow before the, the, the knowledge that they were getting, you know, just a completely mm-hmm. egotistical, frankly, like embarrassing, uh, memory of that. This is what I thought people wanted was to be fed the answers. And mm-hmm. first off, I didn't have the answers. And secondly, people don't want to be fed them, you know? Mm-hmm. Uh, so in taking my lumps, slowly working through what it means to be a manager, Um, I've come into a completely different position, right. Where I think that, um, it's, it's much more about coaching. Um, it's spending time with people. I mean, I've, I've been someone who's, uh, you know, frequency of meetings, either one-on-one or a group, like this is something that I've had to really come into what, what makes sense. But this is, this is what forced so many more opportunities for mentorship. You know, like I sought out, Sam Gibbs, because I had heard great things about Sam from Charlie and Mm -hmm. Sam seemed like someone who was both managing a team, but was also this multidisciplinary practitioner 
how could I be that? Right. I, I, mm. I sought out mentorship from Dave Tenney, um, with, at the time he was with the Orlando or he had just left the Orlando magic, I think. Um, but I even, I mean, I went to other industries, like I sought out, um, you know, I don't know how much you know about formula one, but I'm, I'm fascinated by the way those high performance teams operate and what their team principles do. So I sought out coaching from someone who had worked with the Mercedes team, who at this time was, um, you know, they, they have like this, you know, perennial streak. It'll, it'll get broken this year because Max Verstappen is a phenomenal driver, but, uh, and Red Bull is, is, is resurgent, but, um, they, they've been a, 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 a peak success. And it was like, mm-hmm. what are, what are they doing to succeed? Um, read everything I could possibly find, uh, in the last, you know, 60 years or so, 70 years of, um, of business literature, just to, just to figure out what's even important because, though I had a decade of experience trying to become worthy of my position with respect to something that was maybe more reconditioning related. I'll just, I'll just put a bubble around that topic. Mm -hmm. You know, I was middle school level when it comes to management. So I really, Mm -hmm. I really had to aggressively um, learn what would be, what would be valuable. Um, Mm -hmm. And I would say that I'm still very early, um, you know, in that, in that particular journey. Um, I can say that, you know, we've, I've certainly made progress in, um, you know, my own self-development over the last really four or five years-ish in the position. Um, but my team deserves more. So that's, that's a really, that's a, and the people that I work with, by the way, are like phenomenal. Like I can't even impress that enough. Uh, like I work with such an amazing team here that it's about, you know, really like living up to their expectations and what Mm -hmm. they deserve, like from a manager. Mm -hmm. Um, so I have quite a ways to go. So this, just returning to the block periodization, I'm very much still in this accumulation phase of, of the things I need to be thinking about. Right. Mm-hmm. Um, and I, and I do, and I do think toward a future state where, um, you know, maybe as competent a manager as I felt like maybe I once was as, as a practitioner. Mm-hmm. Um, but I can't, yeah. I mean, it's, it's been, professionally, it's been the most fulfilling, uh, experience, uh, thus far, like as fulfilled as I ever was by, um, the athlete care, um, the, the management of a team, um, and seeing the growth of that team over time, um, has been, uh, has been incredibly impactful, you know, Mm -hmm. um, it's, and and for someone to take it seriously, I, I couldn't recommend it more because I think there's more lessons in it. Um, Mm -hmm. if, if, if you're, if you're open to them. Yeah. I, I really, it's been a, a nice uh, period to listen to your journey. And one of the things that I recognize in you that, um, you know, not having known you for very long other than this podcast um, is you have a nice, you have a nice combination of both <clears throat> a sense of um, um, capacity uh, without saying the word ego, because I don't think that's a good way of expressing it, but a sense of capacity mixed with a sense of humility. Like, um, you know, so you you recognize that you have to step forward into the, you know, uh, and, and you have a confidence in that, so you'll learn things. But at the same time, you have a humility that re- recognizes that you have lots to learn, which is kind of a neat combination. I, I like that a lot. So good good on you, sir. <laughs> um, I appreciate you pointing it out. Uh, it it, uh, thank you for calling me out on the capacity piece. Uh, internally, it feels a lot more like the latter, right? Where, um, I'm, I'm pretty overwhelmed, uh, on a daily basis with, uh, both my ignorance and like what you need to learn, uh, in any given subject area to be effective. Um, I mean, it's, um, it, 
yeah, it can be overwhelming at times, which is, which is maybe where I'm seeing a little bit more value, even recently, Scott, in searching for things that have stood, have stood the test of time, you know, and I'll give you, um, you know, recent examples on this, but like when it comes to management, you know, Andy, Andy Grove's book, high, high output management. Have you read this book? Mm-hmm. Um, I, I, from reading much in that particular field, um, I resonate with something that seems as true today as it was in 1981 when he published it. Um, and in recent review, uh, fundamentals of special strength training, Berkashansky, like I'm, I'm, again, I'm going back to this with a renewed, with some, with a renewed perspective, because when I was first exposed to it, I probably placed it in like, well, this is just one of the SNC books that everyone tells you you need to read, mm-hmm. you know, versus realizing that some of the, you know, some of the ecological dynamics frameworks that's popular now, um, this return to physics with, with people prioritizing, you know, impulse and biomechanics, like you see this permeated. Um, I mean, he lays it out in the first chapter, lays it out. Like it's, it's all there. Um, and I would say that's been very, uh, it's been comforting and at the same time discomforting because you realize how much there is to know, uh, that you only have enough time to really learn like these core ideas, you know, mm-hmm. and that, that's really what you should, or if you can, you should, you focus your efforts there. Mm-hmm. Um, Scott, because like, yeah, that, that idea of, of someone insecurity of never really being able to know, like it's, it's overwhelming at times. And I mm-hmm. can, and I, and I feel like kinship to some of it, to, to those two gentlemen, Berkshansky, Andy Grover, just two examples of guys who like were on it. Like they had really figured it out. Um, and I would much rather, uh, sort of like kindly uh, just inject what, what they have figured out, you know, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. um, because there's just no way that I have the capacity, uh, of like to, to figure it out. You just have to uh, do your best to implement these best practices. Uh, I yeah. think, right. Yeah. Um, well, these old, old, old stewards of, of so much information get lo- the, the information gets lost in translation and sometimes, uh, hybridized too much and it's good to, and bastardized too much. It's good to go back. And, you know, I was talking to Dan Paff about that and just, you know, kind of the recognition that there are these forefathers and foremothers, so to speak, and who've created information and, going back and re-reviewing it with a different lens and a lens of different exposure, you all of a sudden see things that you never saw when you were younger because you didn't appreciate what it was that they were talking about, you know? So good on you for doing that. That's really cool. Yeah. Well, thank you for saying that, Scott. The, la- the last thing just on even that point, because I, there's a, a fiction author, Neil Stevenson, and there, there's like a group of characters in one of his books uh, that sort of surrounds a sort of an academic monastery. Um, where their sole purpose was to be histories of science to halt academic pursuits that had already been sort of resolved years previous, right? Because there's just this recurrence of, Mm. you know, over the course of human history, like the problems change in some ways, but in some ways they're fundamental. It's like, it's, you know, you're starting to identify, is it quote another, is it another one of these coming my way? Mm -hmm. Um, And, and maybe early in my career, I felt that I was the tip of the spear, right? Like I would be the person to integrate the divergence and, uh, you know, funnel something together that would be, that would be new and unique. And, um, I have such a different respect for how difficult that actually is. Right. And it's not like Mel Sif or, 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 uh, you know, whoever weren't having the exact same, weren't trying to solve the exact same problems. Mm -hmm. Um, 
And it would be better to start with their solutions, right? right. And iterate on top of this wisdom and this mastery. Dan Path is certainly in that category. Like, but like these, these type of gentlemen who are just, mm-hmm. uh, who were, who were just giants, um, you'd be better to do this, right? Uh, because it's just, it's just much more difficult to make a truly individual contribution. I'm not certain that it's actually like, I don't think I'm capable of this. Like, I, yeah. I think that more of my capabilities are to, are to learn from these type individuals and just be a vector for it into my staff organization, et cetera. Right. Very cool. Well, Eric, it's been a pleasure to spend uh, 90 minutes with you. And as usual, when you get into great conversations about interesting things, 90 minutes passes very quickly. So uh, I appreciate you taking the time today, sir. And uh, glad you took the opportunity to do one of these that you don't do very often because I think people will be enlightened by your story. So thanks for your time. Yeah, it's my pleasure, Scott. Thanks so much for your engagement and openness. Have a good day. Thanks for joining us today on Leave Your Mark. I hope we've left a mark on you today, and we wish only that you pay it forward by sharing this story, taking the time to rate and comment on this podcast. Please follow us at Twitter at Built by Scott and Instagram at King O'Pain, and become a member of this community at Scott G. Livingston on Facebook. Have a great day. Music by Cedric de Saint-Rome. <laughs>